0: 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this... One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so none, no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanas, Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God.
1: Thank you very much for reading. And um, I'm going to lead us in prayer as we come to God's word together. Let's pray. Please, through your word, gracious Saviour, will you draw us to yourself, in love, please build us up into a temple whereby, grace, you dwell with us. Amen. Well, um, do you have 1 Corinthians open in front of you, if that's okay, as we continue our look through it together. Let me tell you about Alexander. Uh, not so long ago, uh, Alexander had become a Christian, and he'd always kind of been interested in new ideas and the life of the mind and thinking stuff through and he lived in a city that was well known for that sort of thing people love that sort of stuff there, just kind of thinking about stuff and uh, one day he'd heard somebody talking about a particular god a god who had come into the world as a human being and come into the world not to behave like most of the gods that Alexander was familiar with used to behave kind of coming down Mount Olympus to throw their weight around for a little while and then going back up in time for tea. But no, he'd come back down, sorry, he'd he'd come down into the world to become one of us. And then this God he was hearing about had died on a cross. He'd uh, put all of his power aside, embraced weakness as the way to save the world, and then he'd been raised from the dead and called everybody to follow him. This was the message that arrived in Alexander City. And it was an absolute affront to lots of his ideas, lots of how he thought about stuff. The idea that a God would take flesh rather than rescue people from flesh. The idea that a God would choose a path of weakness and humiliation and call that power. The idea that a God would be unwilling just to be one among many but would say, I am the only God there is, and all people everywhere must turn to me. All of that, unheard of. And lots of people around him hated the idea, um, but Alexander had been totally gripped by it, and he had turned to this God and become a Christian uh, in first century Corinth, where he lived. Now, Alexander and um, all of the other people who become Christians in Corinth, they are having to think through Okay, now that I've become a Christian, what does all of this mean for how I live? Now that I've become a Christian, how much stuff has to change? Because that is what happens, isn't it? When, when people trust in the message of Jesus' cross and become Christians, it can't just change your opinions about religion and that's it. And it's it's got to have some implications for the rest of your life as well. Some other stuff has to change, but what stuff? That is the question that he's having to work out, and that's the question that every Christian has to work out. In fact, everybody even thinking about Christianity would be wise to work out, if I were to become a Christian, what would have to change? What stuff? Given that people who become Christians don't do that in a vacuum, but they have lives and jobs and friends and interests and habits and assumptions about how the world works, how much of that has got to change? back in Corinth and people to whom this letter was written, um, some particular questions presented themselves. In particular, um, will stuff about my sex life have to change? People in Corinth, not unlike people in 21st century Oxford, were raised to think, well, bodies are just bodies, sex is just sex. These things don't mean very much for who I am, for my true self. Does that have to change when I'm a Christian? People in Corinth were raised, again, not unlike people in 21st century Oxford, to want to be the best, to want to get ahead and to be seen to be ahead and to have other people know that they are slightly inferior to me. Does that have to change? Or is there some kind of Christian version that I could adopt? Various other things. How much has got to change? In the church in Corinth, there's a kind of mix, it seems. There, There are some ways people are saying being a christian is actually quite a radical break with the life that you used to live and others are thinking well we could we can probably carry on pretty much as we were and um, we'll just add in a few christian bits like bible reading and taking communion and all that kind of stuff those i think are the questions in the heads of the likes of Alexander and all the others who'd become Christians in in 1st century Corinth. This, This letter that we're looking at is a letter written probably to relatively new Christians, having to think that through. How much has got to change? And now the Apostle Paul, who was the guy who told them about Jesus in the first place, has written them this letter. He's heard one or two things about them that are worrying him. You can see one of those things actually in verse 11 that we had read. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And so because of that kind of thing, he's written them a letter where in all sorts of areas, he's saying to them again and again, how much needs to change? You need to realize how much has already changed about you. You've got to realize who you are now. And quite a lot in this letter, he tells them stuff about who they are now and in fact we're just going to look up a couple of them because they're worth seeing so have a look at chapter 1 verse 2 it says to them because of Jesus' death and resurrection chapter 1 verse 2 you are the you you are the church of god you are called to be god's holy people down to chapter 1 verse 5 he says you have been enriched in every way spiritually you are loaded and over uh, just the other side of the page, chapter 2, verse 12. He says, you have received the Spirit who is from God. Chapter 3, verse 16. More things that have changed about their identity, who they are. Chapter 3, verse 16. He says to them, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and his Spirit lives among you? Here's another thing that's changed about you. keep going just for a a moment more because he really piles them up across at chapter six verse three he says to them do you not know that we will judge angels now we'll have to think about what that means when we get to it but for now how significant must you have to have become in order to be told that you're going to judge angels over the page a couple more chapter six verse 15 It's another, do you not know, do you not know that your bodies are members or limbs of Christ himself? And then later in chapter 12, he says, now you are the body of Christ. So how much needs to change? Do you realize who you are? Is the response that Paul gives. Becoming a Christian, in other words, hasn't just involved a change of opinions in one area, plus a few habits tidied up in other areas, a few leaves turned over. He says, You becoming a Christian, Alexander, the rest of you, has has involved an absolute revolution in your identity. When you became Christians, in one sense, everything has changed. He's gonna say later in the letter don't misunderstand that. Like, still be a Corinthian. Still live in the world. He says, If you were married before you were a Christian, stay married now. Every, not everything changes in terms of our circumstances, but everything in terms of how we see the world and see ourselves and think about stuff has changed. Paul says that our basic approach to everything has got to change to match the identity that we now have. That's what think by and large is going on in this letter of one corinthians that we're going to be in together for the next little while everything about how you see stuff has got to change but we start this week with a potentially surprising change in how we see things it's going to say in these eight verses we've had read that our new identity as christians means that we we mustn't have factions amongst us because we are united by the cross. That's so what we're going to see from these verses. We're going to look at them in two halves. Verse 10 to 12 is the problem. And verse 13 to 17 is the solution. And uh, the problem in verse 10 to 12 is familiar, foolish factions. That's the problem in Corinth. And by factions, I mean kind of little groups that we split, uh, split up into amongst ourselves. Let me read verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. So he wants them all in the church to be on the same page. He says, agree with one another. Be united in mind and thought. Now, I take it that doesn't mean he wants them all to share the same opinion on absolutely every issue, literally everything, you know, the ketchup or brown sauce is better, you've got to think the same. It's not like be of one mind on every issue. In fact, a few chapters later, he uses similar language to this. He says, we have the mind of Christ. When he says that, I don't think he means like, our minds are wired into Jesus's mind such that we think all the same thoughts as Jesus about everything. I think what he means is that we are lined up with Jesus. We're on the same page as him. We're orientated in the same direction as him. And so he's saying here, I want you to be lined up with each other in the same direction, pointing the same way. Because we've seen, verse 11, that he's heard from Chloe. who Presumably he must have made friends with when he was in Corinth. Uh, He's heard from Chloe that that is not the case currently. They're not all pointing in the same direction. There's quarrels. Verse 12, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. That is, different Christian leaders had little kind of followings and fan clubs within the church. And it doesn't seem, there's nothing really to indicate that, they, that they're groups based around Disagreements people had about theology, you know, it doesn't feel very likely that a- Apollos would have said he had a difference of opinion with Christ. It doesn't look like they're kind of disagreements about theology, and they weren't factions that had been recruited by the leaders. Paul certainly wasn't trying to recruit a faction. Christ certainly isn't trying to recruit uh, a faction. Um, indeed, I- I- instead, it seems like various people within the church were kind of picking their favourite Christian leader, and. Um, getting sniffy about everybody else uh, whose favourite Christian leader that wasn't. So whatever reason, for whatever reason, some people in the church were saying, well, I, I'm, a, I'm an Apollos guy, personally. Um, we're told, actually, in, in Acts, um, where it talks about when Paul went to Corinth, that Apollos was an excellent speaker. So maybe that was the thing. Um, some people said, like, oh, Apollos, you just listen to his sermons; they're electric. And then um, uh, another group thinking, well, no, Paul, Paul planted this church. I'm on, I'm on team Paul. And another group, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Cephas. Cephas is uh, Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 followers. Peter, I mean, the, the OG disciple. Uh, I've, I've read all of his books. There's, there's a proper Christian I follow. And another, maybe the most condescending and self-righteous group of the lot. Oh, personally, I just follow Christ. <laughs> call, me, call me eccentric, but I just, I just do what the Bible says as if nobody else in the church in Corinth is doing any of that. Factions all over the church. And that kind of behavior was normal in Corinth, um, in in that culture at the time. Very standard to have particular speakers and leaders traveling around, and they're trying to impress and and recruit people uh, so that they get a following, and then their following can pay for them to have that ministry of going around Speaking. So it's a really normal thing, and I think it's basically the same model as being a social media influencer or a YouTuber or something today. You, you, you recruit your faction, and then your faction pay for you to carry on doing what you're doing, and everybody's got their favourite who they subscribe to, um, and so I think that's what's going on. Everyone in Corinth thought like that, and I guess um, there's two appeals to that sort of thing. For one thing, you can kind of bask in the reflected glory of your favorite speaker. So there's a particular podcast that I listened to, which when I looked the other day, was third in the Apple podcast charts. It was the other day, so it may have changed, so I didn't look it up or anything. But anyway, um, it it was doing really well in the Apple podcast charts, and I can't help but feel that that somehow reflects well on me. (laughs) So if I'm I'm part of something important. Um, And for another thing, it's quite fun to feel part of a little group that's a bit better than all of the other little groups. It's fun to have a, a little group of us looking down on everybody else. C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliantly um, insightful essay partly about that dynamic. It's called The Inner Ring. And he says, um, if you're in a little faction, he says, you refer to it as things like you and Tony and me. When it's very secure and comparatively stable in membership, it calls itself We. When it has to be expanded to meet a particular emergency, it calls itself all the sensible people in this place. From outside, if you've despaired of getting into it, you call it that gang, or they, or so-and-so in his set. So that kind of thing is normal um, in Corinth, factions splitting up into little groups based on who we follow, who we like the best. And um, of course, it's still normal in our world today, um, split up, splitting up into factions. Maybe maybe more and more so um, in a world where algorithms will just feed me content that I already agree with or um, the worst representation of the people that I don't agree with so that I can get angrier and angrier about them. Just what happens? We split up into little groups. I was reading the other day about um, the new atheist movement which was big in the noughties and really big for a while and one of their some ways, legitimate critiques of religion was, well, why are there so many of them? They're constantly splitting off into new little groups and inventing new little gods and that kind of thing. And then the new atheist movement itself split. It was hit by various kind of cultural winds and, and split very acrimoniously. So what happens whenever people get together? Actually, when I was reading about this this week, I learned a new word, which was thesiparous, which I thought was a great-sounding word. And what it means is, when something is just inclined to divide and break apart. So all human groups and societies are fissiparous. which is just what we do, we split up into little factions. And to be fair to the new atheists, they were right that this is a thing that happens in churches today as well. Maybe not exactly the same at St. Ebbs as in Corinth, but in an internet age particularly it's easy for us all to kind of have our favorite christian leader that we follow and then we slightly judge the people who like a you know like a different christian leader and um sort of becomes a a basis of splitting up into factions actually as we read on through one corinthians it seems as though one of the things they were doing was importing the divisions that exist in society into their church and so the Christians in Corinth who were wealthy and well connected didn't have a lot of time for the ones who weren't, and vice versa. That's a risk for a diverse church like ours. Paul says, I appeal to you not to do that. Don't think like that. Verse 10 In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with one another. Not that You know, there should be no distinctions among you. There might be some organisational reasons to have different groups. There might be reasons to do with core teachings of the faith to separate ourselves from others who call themselves Christians. But a a divisive spirit, a love of splitting up into our little groups and having our favourite leaders and judging everybody else, that's a problem, Paul says. Here's the solution um, from verse 13 to 17. The problem was familiar foolish factions. The solution is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And um, we'll we'll get slightly more into the detail of that. But verse 13, Paul asks three, you've got to be joking type questions. I don't know if you have the friend who um, always punctuates their messages quite aggressively. Um, I'm fine, full stop. Um, If that person had uh, written verse 13... Um, then these would be three questions, each one followed by a load of, ex- a load of like, question marks and exclamation marks. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And each one of these questions shows us something about Jesus that makes a nonsense of our factions. So let's look at each of them. The first one, is Christ divided? The lesson, I think, is that Jesus has only got one body If you think about it, why would the fact that Jesus isn't divided mean that we shouldn't be divided? What's the connection between Jesus' unity and our unity? I think in 1 Corinthians, certainly, the connection is that we are the body of Christ. We are part of him. And so for churches to be kind of splitting off into their little factions... It's a little bit like, if I can say this, taking Jesus' body and and pulling it apart. Actually, Paul's already um, hinted in 1 Corinthians that God is all about bringing together one people. So if you look up to verse 2, it says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is united and whole, and he's calling all sorts of people from everywhere to be a part of his body. That's what we mean um, when we say in the creed that we believe in the holy Catholic church. It's not a, a comment about denominations, but Catholic means universal. And we're saying that we believe that Jesus has got one universal body of which we're a part and if that's right, then we can't be splitting off into factions over which leaders we prefer. This is always a temptation, isn't there? When you know, if you're here as a Christian and you, you meet uh, another Christian that you don't know, there's always a temp- temptation to kind of listen out for the cues of what sort of Christian they are. Which church did you say you go to? What what networks is that a part of? What do you think about this or that issue? And you're kind of. Without really meaning to, you're trying to put them in a box, and if they go into the wrong box, then you'll just become slightly standoffish. Paul would say it's worldliness. Think of who we are in Christ, his body. In fact, I think Paul is deliberate in emphasizing in these verses that we are therefore a family. So verse 10, what does he address them as? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Verse 11, my brothers and sisters. Jesus has got one body, and so we live as one body. Perhaps you're here, um, not a Christian, or even as a Christian, thinking, well, like, the very fact that we're talking about this, isn't this quite a bad sign? Like, you know, the fact that Christians split up into their different groups and we judge each other and we do all that. Are we really any different from everybody else? But as we've said, the fact is that this happens everywhere, this kind of splitting up into groups. And the question is, is there anywhere in the world that has some solid resources for holding people together. And that's what Paul is giving us here, I think. So that was the first question, is Christ divided? The second one, was Paul crucified for you? And the lesson, of course, is that only Jesus died for you. In the end, we follow the person who we think can help us. And uh, Christianity says the only thing that can help us as sinners, as those who've turned away from God and rejected him and deserve his condemnation, the only thing that can help us is the sacrificial death of a substitute in our place. And only Jesus is qualified to do that and therefore only Jesus has done that. Which means that what God wants to do in each of our lives and in our life together is not dependent on a particular Leader. I remember chatting to um, somebody shortly after Billy Graham died. Billy Graham was a very significant Christian leader, and this person I was chatting to said, Yeah, well, I was yo- when I was younger, I thought when Billy Graham died, Christianity would just end. And um, I wouldn't put it as crassly as that, but it's easy for us to slip into that kind of thinking about people, isn't it? But God's plans, God's plans for each of us, don't depend on a particular ministry or the continuity of a particular denomination. His plans depend on Jesus' death and all that it means for us. And so we owe our allegiance to Jesus alone. And then the third question that Paul asks kind of builds on that. Were you baptised in the name of Paul? The point is that it's the gospel that saves people, not the leader. Obviously, they weren't baptized in the name of Paul, um, but they were baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as people are baptized today. But it seems as though um, some people in Corinth um, might have been using number of people baptized as a kind of scoring system for Christian leaders. A kind of key performance indicator for the the Christian leader is is number of uh, baptisms. Uh, And um, I think Paul is the best, and he baptized me. So well done me, that, that, that sort of a logic. And uh, Paul says, verse 14, well in that case I'm glad that I didn't baptise any of you, except Crispus and Gaius and then um, Stephanus, who we know was with him as he wrote 1 Corinthians, perhaps sort of just gives him a little nudge and Paul says, oh yes, I also baptised the uh, household of Stephanus. Um, beyond that I don't remember. Uh, initially when I read that I thought well, he slightly undermining his point here, but I think the point is, who cares who I baptised? I don't even remember who I baptised. It's an absolute irrelevance. I feel like it wasn't very many, but actually it doesn't really matter because the important thing that I did for you wasn't baptise you. The important thing that I did for you, verse 17, was to preach the gospel to you, to tell you about Jesus and what he's done. Baptism can only mark and seal faith The gospel can produce faith. And so, in that sense, Christian leaders, in in that particular sense, are of very little consequence. What really matters about what they do is that they point to what Jesus has done. He goes on to say, it doesn't really matter how eloquently they do it. Paul says he did it not with wisdom and eloquence. What matters is what Jesus has done for us because that and that alone can help us so he says don't don't be kind of gathering around particular christian leaders as though they're the main event because jesus is the main event the cross is the main event gather around that paul says and that'll that'll stop you from dividing if the thing that you really hold up is what it is all about is a thing that has already happened and been accomplished by Jesus. There's an old song that says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. if That's the main event for us. Then that might start to change how we think about one another. So, you become a Christian, um, how much does it change? Well, in these verses, it changes even the way that you think about everybody else who's a Christian. Becoming a Christian, Jesus says to us, that we are part of one united family. And so we can't be getting sniffy about other people in the family, regardless of which leader they prefer. Says that Jesus alone has been crucified to save us. And so we owe our allegiance to Jesus alone. And it says that our only hope is in a message about an execution on a cross. Human power, human brilliance, it can't help us. But Jesus can. So, Paul says, trust him and stand together with your brothers and sisters who do the same. Next week, we're going to think some more about that message of the cross and what it is about what Jesus has done that has this radically uniting um, effect. But for now, I'm going to pray that um, what Paul has appealed to the Corinthians for Um, would be truer and truer of us. So let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ is not divided. Thank you that Christ was crucified for us. And thank you that we as your people were baptized in Christ's name. We pray that As we take to heart each of those truths more and more, they would lead to us putting aside factionalism, superiority, worldliness. That we'd be more and more a humble, united family rejoicing in and around the cross of Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen.